0: Hello, and welcome to Bird of the Week. It's a podcast about birds, released on a non-weekly basis. Episode 18, The Great Feather Heist, Part 1. Today, I'm going to be doing something a little different. I'd like to tell you about the Bird World equivalent of Ocean's Eleven. Uh, Except it was just one guy. There was was no team. Oceans 1? I know we all love a true crime podcast, so I'm jumping on the bandwagon because this is one wild tale. It is the story of the world's largest natural history museum robbery. It took place in England in the summer of 2009. On that fine June evening, one Edwin Rist, a young and promising musician, broke into the Tring Museum and stole 299 preserved bird specimens, estimated to have been worth at least a quarter of a million pounds. And a lot of people these days think that was a gross underestimation as well. Who knew there was so much money in dead birds? The story of how Edwin pulled off the heist and was eventually caught is fascinating, but what is even more fascinating is the motivation that drove him to commit the crime, and the niche niche, community of Semen Lure Fly Tyres that created a market for those stolen birds. This is a rollicking tale, and to tell it, I'm going to be joined by a friend. He knows almost nothing about this story, and hopefully will be reacting along with you as we tell it. He is going to kindly stand in for you, the audience make the telling all that much more fun. So without further ado, let's get on with our tale. Hello, David. Thank you for joining me for this Bird of the Week true crime episode. How are you?
1: Good evening, Dr. Angie Finger. I'm okay. How are you?
0: Oh, look, I'm doing doing good. It's great to be here.
1: Oh, thank you. Um, You know, because I think think the, the,
0: the listeners of Bird of the Week should know that Bird of the Week probably wouldn't exist... Without David Because, you know, back in the day When this was literally just a joke I think <laughs> you, David, were the
1: first person Who shared the weekly emails I encouraged you ruthlessly Yes, very and, ruthlessly And spread it around far and wide in our, in our very small department at the time
0: Yeah, had that not happened Bird of the Week would not be here So you're like,
1: you're like the midwife I'm happy to be a midwife I don't think I... Just like trying to be a midwife I would have no idea what I'm doing as I didn't then, but I'm really glad it worked out, and it's thrived since then, and it's turned into a veritable bird empire. <laughs> With you at it's, the head.
0: Oh, as as well I should be as the benevolent dictator of the bird empire. Well,
1: below the birds, of course.
0: Oh, oh, naturally, naturally. Um, <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're, they're like the gods, you know. I'm kind of like Queen Elizabeth. I'm just their representative on Earth. Um,
1: like Horus.
0: Yes. <laughs> yeah. So um, I've I've deliberately left you in the dark today about what we're going to be talking about.
1: Yes, scant few details.
0: Yes, I think all you know is that it's a museum heist.
1: Yes, which sounds very interesting, intriguing. I, I hope that you'll tell me all about it from start to finish, and the twists and turns. <laughs> there are many
0: twists and turns. Excellent. Um, yes, so to really do justice to the story, I think it's important to place it in some context, and as we... As you kind of get into the facts of the story, which is crazy, you sort of lose track of the birds that are at the centre of the story. So I thought before we got too far along, maybe we should meet some birds. Would you like to meet some birds, David? I would
1: always like to meet some birds. Uh, Unlike your previous guests, I'm a fan of all birds, including the rock dove. (laughs) (laughs) Please tell me about these birds.
0: So I think in this story, there are five birds that are kind of central to the story. And the first one is called the Spangled Continger. Ooh. I hope
1: I said that right. Oh, they sound brilliant. It, uh, they are brilliant. Oh, that is a very pretty bird. Would you like to uh, have a crack at describing the Spangled Continger? Absolutely. So it is a brilliant shade of turquoise, I would say, um, or or maybe cerulean. Yeah. It's it's a little bird. It's it looks like it's about maybe. Five inches tall, I'd say maybe Starling sized. Yeah, a very very elaborate Starling though. It's it's got this uh, throat patch of of colour that seems to be a very vibrant Merlot red, mm. and it's got quite intelligent looking dark eyes <laughs> and a little bit of black uh, highlights or, or or shading on its wings to really add yes. contrast to its blue. Yeah, it's lovely. That's a pretty good description. Is it spangled though?
0: Uh, it's so the spangled part would be a reference to uh, you kind of you see how its color is a bit
1: flecked. There's a slight mottling of the the dark, the low lights. Yes.
0: Yeah. So that that's that that would be the um, the spangled part. These birds are native to the Amazon rainforest. Can see that. Yep. They they live high in the canopy uh, where they feed on fruits. And the name Contiga comes from an extinct Tupi language, which was originally spoken by the indigenous people of the region, and it loosely translates to bright forest bird. What a great description. Maybe I should have just said that. It's a bright forest bird. Okay, so that's our first bird. Let me bring up a second bird. It's a great start. Ooh. So this
1: is our second bird. This is a red-ruffed fruit crow. So this bird has taken inspiration from our friend the Spangled Köttinger mm. in that it also has a very red neck section, although it's more of a an orangey, slightly orangey blood red, which is quite brilliant, and it's much uh, fluffier. So red ruffed, accurate. It's got a, a bit more of a density to its plumage around the neck. Otherwise, mm. it's a black, yeah, it's a black crow-looking bird. The rest of it. Some of them, ooh, some of them seem to have a bit of a an orange chest, a nice slightly mm. more orange version compared to the reddish orange on their neck.
0: Yeah, they kind of vary between like a really bright red and a more orangey color, don't they?
1: Hmm. Yeah, I think. What what color would we say that is? It's it's like literally the color of an orange. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> Finally uh, enough. Indeed,
0: so yeah, they're 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 kind of similar to the Contigas, and, and we should note though that even though they do have the word crow in their name, they are not related to crows or ravens at all. They aren't. Oh. They aren't even in the same order. It's just that they're kind of like a, a, a black bird. In fact, they're more closely related to the Contigas, um, and they're in the same basic basic family. They're kind of like distant-ish cousins, um, and they they're they're both Amazonian birds.
1: They have a slightly. Uh, how did they get their slightly crow-like head bit? Then their their beak and eyes are very reminiscent of a crow.
0: They are a bit, aren't they? A, b-
1: a bit more of like a a quaffed hairstyle, I would say. <coughs> They've used some hair gel. It's like if a crow, maybe maybe teased its little top plumage bits to make it stand up.
0: Yeah. Look, they're a they're a, they're a fashion-forward crow. I'll give <laughs> them that. <laughs> That's it. Yeah. Our third bird is a bird that I know you're familiar with, David. The resplendent quetzal.
1: Ooh, I love a quetzal. They are great. They are they are pretty special birds. I, I love a quetzal as well. well it was a quetzal it was quite an early episode of Bird of the Week, wasn't it?
0: That's a very good memory. I think it was uh, maybe Bird of the Week
1: fifteen. Quetzals are weird when they're younger. Uh, they're 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 like they're an odd looking bird, right? Mm. Do you want to have a go to Do you want to take this one?
0: You know, I think Quetzals, they've got to be one of the most beautiful birds in the world. They have these incredibly vivid green plumes and their heads are kind of like little green pom-poms as well. Like they've got little poofy heads, which are also very green. Obviously, the most striking part of the the Quetzal is the ridiculously long tails that they have. Ridiculously long the average ones grow to about 75 centimetres in length and the really big ones can get up to a metre. Is that just the tail? How long's the bird in comparison? I'd say the bird is probably about a third the size of the tail. Yeah. Yeah, like their tails are definitely longer than the rest of their body. And then they've got this really, again, a very vivid, bright red chest. Mm. And they've got these strange cover- coverlet uh, feathers that sort of come off their wings and sort of wrap around their chest as well, these green fringes. Yes. Which is very very unusual they're dressed for autumn they've got a little a little shawl going on yes very much so yes they've got a, yes yeah
1: also very fashion forward
0: very fashion forward and again they live in the tropics I think they're they're very important to Aztec and Mayan mythology I think they're associated with their gods um associated with the god Quetzalcoatl who was uh, uh, Quetzalcoatl, Quetzalcoatl was a feathered flying serpent mm, yes. and which kind of makes sense because they've got such this ridiculously long tail and you kind of see them flying through the air you know i guess you could say it almost slivers through the air the tail so you know you can understand how people could think of them as
1: being like a flying snake which is
0: terrifying but you know you gotta appease the snake god
1: <laughs> the, the the deity is it's a it's a bird snake isn't it the the aztec deity
0: yeah it's a yeah it's a flying bird snake and know, feathered I, serpent i think it's uh i think it was associated with i think it was the god of the air um it's associated with freedom and goodness and light
1: it was like it was a was a good god. Yes. Not terrifying. <laughs> well, I mean that fits for the birds. Certainly they they look quite friendly. They have a happy little yellow beak. They don't look they would look like they would attack me unless I was some sort of insect. For our next
0: two birds, we need to leave the Amazon and go to New Guinea to meet our old friends the birds of paradise. Two in particular, the king bird of paradise and the superb bird of paradise. And ironically, these birds are related to crows. David, um, you, you might remember the superb bird of paradise from a previous episode.
1: I absolutely do. Um, it was, it's its a, a close second to the, the first appearance I ever saw it in was in a David Attenborough documentary. Oh, very close second. Thank you. Very close. Well, I mean, tied first. <laughs> yeah, they, they click clack about as they dance about.
0: Yeah, so they, I guess they're, they're almost like a, a sort of a, a nondescript black bird when they're kind of just chilling out except for this bright blue uh, breastplate I suppose they have on their chests uh, which is uh, very iridescent and electric blue and then when they do their mating display they have this amazing transformation where they flare up a a cape that turns them into this oval shape and they've got spots on their head that they angle to make it sort of look like they're this little ovoid smiley face that's um, (laughs) bouncing around and clicking and just being ridiculous in general. (laughs)
1: I, it just looks like such a ridiculous and kind of happy, but in like a very not a very self-conscious kind of ridiculous in in the best possible way. (laughs) It it's um, what's it meant to look like? Do we know? Is it just striking? We we don't know what the bird is going for, but
0: there's this there's a strong theme within the birds of paradise though that a lot of the birds that have these transformations as part of their mating display all of them are doing a rift on a black ovoid mm. so the superb bird of paradise does that the oh, golly, um the proteas kind of turn into a, a black ovoid and mm-hmm. um oh, i'm just trying to remember what the other ones names are uh, the the black sicklebills also turn into a kind of it, it's a little different but again it's a black ovoid and uh, the rifle birds also and they do it in different ways Like the proteas sort of have a skirt that they flick out And the rifle birds use their wings And the superb bird uses a cape on its back um, So they all have different ways of making this shape But they all kind of have focused on that shape So there's mm-hmm. obviously something about this black oval shape That is appealing to the the broader family in general But why that is, well, who, who knows um, But they all have their own take on it for some one reason or another. It's a it's
1: a good canvas to add a pop of color onto certainly.
0: Yeah, definitely. They um yeah, and all of them do that as well. Um they all have the proteas have their, they have their own bibs that they flick out that really pop against the black background um and it, you know which is very striking. So perhaps there's something in that. Yeah, maybe it's the canvas upon which they paint. <laughs> <laughs>
1: it, it, it's very very poetic maybe. Maybe they are. I think, um, to me, it, it honestly reminds me of something out of um, Studio Ghibli, the, the little soot sprites.
0: Oh, yeah, from um, Totoro.
1: Yeah, if you got a little soot sprite and it was having a, a bit of fun and painted a giant smile on its face <laughs> and then bounced about. I can see that. That's what I would see. yeah.
0: I can see that. So I think I've sent you one more bird. That's the Kingbird of Paradise Which is a bird that I really like But I've never
1: said anything about it Do you want to describe that one? I'm I'm shocked and appalled that You've never said anything about it I think it deserves many words And perhaps a reboot in about eight years time Okay, I will describe this bird <laughs> <laughs> Okay The... Oh, okay So it's quite a... It's quite a, an array of colours on this bird It's quite regal hmm. I would say it's... It's a bit like a finch, but with mm. a sort of shorter forehead and a bit more of a streamlined looking head. It's got a mostly red head and a red back feathers. Mm-hmm. It's, its red ooh, shifts to, in a rather nice gradient, from red to yellow, bright yellow onto its beak, which is very pretty. It has some excellent eye shadow going on, some, some dark eye shadow above its eye. Presumably applied without a mirror From the looks of the poor thing But you know it's going It's bold um, It's got a green chest feather Yep Adornment uh, Almost like it's Almost like a, a gorget Like an armour piece And then underneath mm. that It's got a white belly And then mm-hmm. it's got some Lovely little blue feet It does have very blue Like unusually blue feet mm, It does It's quite a good contrast I think with the other choice of Feather colours It also mm. seems to have a little couple of feathers Hanging down, just sticking out from its tail With some fascinators at the end
0: Yes, it's got these Peculiar tail feathers that are kind of They're, they're like naked quills Except right at the end There's um like a disc of A, a really vivid green That form little, little tight circle coils Ooh. And they also have These weird like fan shaped things that stick off their chest uh, a little bit as well That they kind of flare as a frill when they do their mateship oh, mating displays
1: They've got little epaulettes Yes, yes, yes They've kind of got little shoulder epaulettes <laughs> How pretty I would not expect many birds to have epaulettes But this one has gone for it And it's all the better for it <laughs> they've, they've, they've taken the, the rarely trodden epaulette road I tell you what Some of them really go all out on those epaulettes And at the end of the epaulettes It's like a, a teal mm. sort of iridescent colour yeah, I've, like, I really love them They're
0: such an unusual bird But I've never, I've never known what to say about them though. Aside from the fact of, hey, check this bird out
1: It's, it's pretty do we, do we know why the, um, the eye is there? Because it looks like it's almost trying to replicate Or extend where the eye might be As a, a sort of a Either to make the eyes seem bigger Or make something, maybe a predator Think that they're in a different spot Hmm, um, it, well it wouldn't be Predator related Are these the top of the food chain birds?
0: Well no um the birds of paradise part of the reason why they are so adorned and how would you say it you you, you know you can't miss them sort of thing they're very they're very colorful they're very brightly
1: embellished yes
0: yes you, they they don't they don't go in for camouflage um and part of the reason why they have a, been able to do that is because they live in a place where there's basically nothing that preys on them they really? so they yeah very few predators, maybe like the odd snake or like a, a hawk or an eagle or something, but because they live in a jungle, you know, where there's lots of cover, they there are very few things that prey on the birds of paradise, and that's part of the reason why they have become so colourful, whereas other birds have to hide, and mm. so they opt for camouflage. The birds of paradise,
1: not so much. It's not a, not an issue for them. They just stand out, live, just live being their, their true selves. <laughs> Indeed. Um, Good on so I think I think that's all our birds. That's all the birds. Now, how does this relate to a heist? <laughs> that's a great question. It's a great question. But we need more context
0: first. We're getting Please. there. I we're love getting context. there. You certainly do. So we've met our birds, and uh, I guess there isn't really much that connects them too much, aside from the fact that obviously they were all ridiculously beautiful. Now, da- tell me, David, are you familiar with?
1: The feather trade. Ah, <laughs> oh, that would have been a great opportunity for me to, like, reveal that I am... A feather trader. <laughs> I am a feather trader, and this is very close to my heart and financial interest. No. Um, <laughs> uh, no, I, I've only heard of the feather trade, I think, in the context of maybe hundreds of years ago, people bring back feathers to try to prove that new species might exist of, of birds. But um, otherwise, I just... I figure they're used in various sorts of uh, hats and and hunting. Maybe there's a market for that. Mm. Well, y- y- you're pretty close to the mark.
0: So the fe- the the feather trade sprung up as a consequence of a fashion frenzy, I suppose you might oh, say. It was hats. It was indeed hats. Oh. So during the the nineteenth the century and the beginning of the twentieth century. The must-have fashion accessory were feathers, and ladies would adorn their hats with the fanciest feathers money could buy. And some women would even commission hats that had a whole stuffed bird on top of it. the The rumor, the rumor that I've heard is that Mary Antoinette was the fashionista that kicked off the craze when she um, very famously wore a white egret feather in her hair in
1: 1775. Oh, mon Dieu! indeed. <laughs> it's that's a that's quite a I mean frankly though for Marie Antoinette that sounds quite subdued. <laughs> <laughs> Just a, a white feather in your hair? A single feather Marie Antoinette?
0: I suppose she did fashion her hair to look like a boat at one point. She
1: did. What's <laughs> a feather?
0: I think she could have done more. Uh, so um well it's, I think I mean I ha- you know I haven't fact checked this but it's the earliest <laughs> so kind. it's almost certainly true. Almost certain, 100% true, unfact-checked, unverified, but it's one of the, I suppose, the earliest uses of a very famous, prominent person who was kind of renowned for their fashion choices, I suppose. Yeah. So it's it's an early, I guess, record of a very famous person using a feather as part of an, accessor, as an accessory in their clothing. Oh. And then kind of over the next 100 years, um, women's fashion progressively became all about feathers. But they weren't they weren't really interested in the local avian life. The common birds of Europe, you know, they, they weren't appealing. They wanted hummingbirds and toucans and egrets and peacocks and birds with brilliant colours and large plumes. You know, the more exotic the location, the better sort of thing. That's, that's what they're after.
1: Of course, like the very colourful white egret Marie. I just still think she could have been done better. Wow. Casting shade on m- m- my girl. <laughs> always, always throwing shade. That's the real tea. Uh, tell me more about the Feather Trade. So chief among, you know, the birds that were coveted
0: during the Feather Trade were the friends that we just met, the Conticas, the Quetzals, the birds of paradise. They were all keenly sought after. And uh, to appease this appetite for birds, um, the Feather Trade, basically sprung up and you'd have merchants would travel to every corner of the world to basically catch and kill these birds and bring back their feathers for the fashion industry and it was really done on an industrial level there were hunters merchants traders milliners middlemen they were unionized <laughs> really oh yeah yeah they were union they were unionized they were all wow. about protecting workers rights. so yeah, it was a it was a whole fully fledged thriving industry and there were big bucks to be made. I think the business was estimated to be worth over $2 billion
1: in US money today. Oh my God. So it wasn't, it wasn't like these explorers running about on boats with a bit of a side hustle in feathers. This was like a concerted effort. Oh,
0: yeah. <laughs> concerted effort is how I would describe it. Um, maybe I could just to give you a feel for like how hot the business was at its height an ounce of feathers from the right species was worth more than its weight in gold quite literally
1: well i mean what would weigh more the the ounce of feathers or the ounce of bricks you know yeah that's it's the age-old questions so so you know the the feathers were going
0: for astronomical sums and so naturally you know the birds were being wiped out in the millions (laughs) naturally Naturally. We have only patchy estimates as to just how many birds were killed during the feather trade. But in, I think I've seen one estimate from in 1900, it was estimated that just in North America alone, 200 million birds were killed just for the feather trade.
1: Mm -hmm. The dark cost of fashion.
0: Oh, yes. It's kind of amazing that most of the birds that were targeted through the fashion
1: trade are still... Has still survived today? Oh, did they did they foster them in some way to or encourage them to to spread and and have greater numbers, or was
0: it just luck? I think um, in part it was just luck. Species like the great egret, um, the feather that Marie Antoinette wore, and a type of albatross, they were basically wiped out, and then it's only been concerted efforts after the trade kind of happened that have rehabilitated those species uh, since then. Are
1: albatross feathers particularly beautiful?
0: Um, Yeah, that one always... um, I I don't have the particular species name in front of me at the moment. But that that story is quite interesting as well. They thought that these albatross had been wiped out and that they were extinct. But because of the way albatross mature, they stay out at sea until they're of breeding age. And so what happened about five years after they were declared extinct, a bunch that were still juvenile out at sea returned to their nesting sites. And then they were like, oh my god, they're they're still out there and they... Have sort of protected them ever since and they've slowly built their
1: numbers back up humanity really got extremely lucky on that one that could have been very very awkward yes so that's that one but
0: i guess one good thing that did come out of the feather trade was that it was really the beginning of um that's where animal rights movements first began in an effort to kind of shut down the trade i was gonna say
1: where was because you, you mentioned workers rights but what about the birds rights
0: well, yes. So you had um, these early con- conservation movements that um, sprung up that were about protecting the birds. And they met with a lot of stiff resistance from the feather trade and the unions at the time, you know, who said, you can't close down the coal mines. What about the jobs?
1: I'm now picturing a tiny bird in a coal miner's hat with some some coal dust on it. Yeah.
0: So, you know, it's kind of, they're in the same arguments that you run today. It's like, you can't shut the feather trade down there's too many jobs rely on it but strangely the the conservationists won and then a lot of laws were passed that basically uh, that protected the birds and banned the hunting and the sale of them anyway uh, so so that happened and so this is all this is all side story we now interrupt this show with a quick word from our sponsors did you know bird of the week is a listener supported podcast wait you mean people actually pay for this nonsense get out of town It's true. This podcast is only possible because people who listen and like what they hear have been generous enough to chip in a buck or two. Thank you so much to everyone who signed on. I can't tell you how much your support means to me. And everyone who does give their support also gets access to the bonus Bird of the Week sponsors-only podcast, What's Up With That Bird's Name. So exclusive. Each episode breaks down a bird's name to discover just how these amazing avians got their name. Do you want to know how the Great Tit got its name, and does it have anything to do with memories? Maybe. Who can say? I can say, and you can find out for the low, low price of just $2 a month. My god. It's basically an investment at that price. And if you're crazy enough to chip in a bit more, and would like the extra kudos, then you too can be like my newest, bestest, best friends in the whole wide world, Jill Chalker, Jodie Little, and Innes of Senti Illustrations, and get your own personal thank you in the show. Thanks, guys, it warms my heart, it really does. So, if you want to get some extra avian action in your life, pop over to Patreon. That's Patreon forward slash bird of the week, all one word, link in the description, and now, on with the show! So while, uh, yeah, so while the feather trade was happening to fuel women's fashion, it was also enabling another more male and more niche hobby Bigger hats <laughs> Bigger hats, bigger hats, manlier hats, um, 10-gallon hats
1: <laughs> that's, that's what big hats mean, masculinity <laughs> uh, And just as toxic, I'm sure it has lots oh, of yes. other negative effects on the poor birds No, please, how did men love feathers? So, well, what happened, so during the height of the
0: feather trade, the cities of America and Europe, they were awash with all of these rare and exotic feathers, and they started to come to the attention of the fly-fishing community. Now, David, I know you're an avid fly fisherman.
1: Uh, I'm. I'm trying to literally remember what it involves. I (laughs) don't think there's any flying. Isn't it something about the lure bounces up and down on the top of the water? Is that fishing? Fishing hey. involves catching fish. You're in the ballpark. Well, that's good because that's as close as I'm going to get. What okay. What do you do in fly fishing? Tell All me right more maybe maybe we need an introduction to the sport. And I,
0: I promise I promise we're getting to the museum heist. It's coming. But first, <laughs> fly fishing. <laughs> okay, so there are two types of fish that are primarily targeted in fly fishing. One is the trout and the other is the salmon. I did not know this. Those are the those are the two main ones. So, a, so the basic premise of fly fishing. It, it, so it's different from where you you would use like bait on a hook, literal like putting a worm on a hook. It's, it's, um, with fly fishing, what you're trying to do is you're trying to make a lure that mimics the fish's uh, natural food. You're trying to trick it to take the lure instead of having literal bait, I suppose. Uh, I presume the main um, food source for trout is the king bird of paradise. Oh, absolutely. See, now you're getting it. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, um, you, so you, you try to tour, tie a lure that mimics a beetle or a bug or a fly right. that's fallen in the water, and the fish comes up and tries to eat it, and, you know, shazam, you've caught your fish. Except that's only how fly fishing works when you're going after trout. So with trout, you try to make a lure that mimics their natural prey. But salmon are different, because... Um, you know as you as you know, salmon, they, they live it out out in the ocean and they only come into the rivers to spawn. Mm-hmm. Salmon are tricksy. Yes, indeed. So because they're only coming into the rivers to spawn, the salmon then they're not actually feeding, so your lure doesn't have to imitate a bug. Instead, what what happens with salmon is that they can get a bit territorial in the river and if they see something floating on the water's surface, they'll be like, "Hey, get out of here And they'll swim up to attack it. and that's how you trick them into taking the lure.
1: Are they more territorial about another fish?
0: You know what? I'm not across the intricacies of salmon territorial
1: behaviour. I'm shocked you haven't researched that for this very specific segment.
0: I'm, 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 I'm sorry, David. Isn't I'll that what this, specific, this episode is about? It's all about fly fishing, buddy. Um, <laughs> it's quite a shift. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Hey. hey, fish, birds, we've got everything. So, 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 your lure with the the salmon it do, it doesn't have to imitate anything as long as it agitates the fish it's it's basically done its job. But when has that ever stopped people from developing pseudoscience around anything
1: i do I do dislike pseudoscience. tell well, me what they thought.
0: I've got a lot of it for you. <laughs> perfect.
1: So that brings us back to England in the eighteen hundreds.
0: It's the Victorian era. And fly fishing was becoming a gentlemanly pursuit. And as with everything to do with the aristocracy, traditions and conventions grew around the sport. Um, You know, there's a a proper way to do things, old boy. And if you're going to fish for salmon, you need to have the best equipment, the best rods, the best lines, the best lures. For God's sake, you can't do it like an
1: amateur. (laughs) Oh, I can only assume that the uh, solution was to toss women's hats (laughs) into the water. Only the
0: finest the Only finest the silken finest ladies' the hats. I wouldn't, eat a, it's a, I wouldn't eat a salmon that can't tell the difference between a bonnet and a, I don't know, some it's other hat. any other hat? <laughs> Clearly. Come
1: on, we just need to name two hats for this bit. <laughs> well, you said 10 gallon earlier, but I don't think women are aristocracy in England are wearing that. Ah, we'll cut this bit. <laughs> <laughs> this bit fair, that has failed so a, tragic. A racist fascinator. Oh dear. Right.
0: Anyway, where was I? Okay, so so anyway, so you've got these toffs, and they've got nothing better to do but sit around and experiment with tying lures using different materials, um, and they came up with a sort of you know silly theories as to what type of lure would work best on what river at what time of year under what conditions, and there was this whole science of creating like the perfect lure. You know, never mind the fish couldn't actually tell the difference.
1: Can can salmon see colour?
0: Um, I don't know. <laughs> I can uh, look it bet up. they did not check that. <laughs> insert it in later. Nathan from the future here. Can Semen see colour? Um, well, it has a short answer and a long answer, because as with everything, it's complicated. But to give you the short answer, yes. Semen can see colour. Back to Nathan from the past. So yeah, So they had all these theories. All of it's nonsense, because all you have to do is, you know,
1: annoy the fish and it's going to attack the lure. Yeah. But anyway, and you could do that by tossing in a sun hat. <laughs> I guess that would annoy the fish. Yeah, that's the second type of hat. <laughs> oh, there you go.
0: Insert <laughs> <laughs> that in later. That throwback. Yeah. So these toffs developing all their theories about what type of lure is going to be best, and at the same time, the feather trade was going on, and there were all these exotic, expensive plumes, you know, floating around the place and. Using feathers as part of a salmon fly was... Uh, it's a fairly traditional kind of material, but you would usually use easy-to-get feathers like a chicken or a pheasant or duck feathers, you know, birds that are just hanging around a farmyard. But they're just just—they're just common feathers. Why would you use a common feather when you could use an exotic, expensive feather? After all, only the best will do.
1: We have to impress the other toffs.
0: Exactly. Yeah, it's got to be better, you know? It's, it's logic, aristocratic style.
1: The most sound form of logic. And that always holds up, and that has not been described as pseudoscience in the intro to this bit. <laughs> so naturally, they progressively started
0: experimenting with feathers from the birds of paradise, the quetzals, you know, the other the, the birds that we met at the, at the start of the episode. And even though it was ridiculous and expensive um, at the time, these feathers, you know, they were freely available, and anyone dumb enough with money to spend could easily ascertain them. And so as the years went by, there were a few very influential people in the fly tying sport who you know, wrote these books that became classics about how to tie specific flies with. And, you know, they would list out all the materials you need with the step by step instructions. And the most famous one was um, it was a guy called George Mortimer Kelson, who wrote a book called The Salmon Fly, which became, you know, the, the Bible in, of the genre. And in it being a toff, he, he scoffs at novices who use inferior feathers, you know, only silk from the Orient would do.
1: Um,
0: you know, if you're going to catch salmon, the fish
1: recognises quality work. Good dear God. Marie Antoinette, don't you know, she used a white egret feather. Oh, oh my gosh. We'd be very good toffs. Uh, oh, we'd be excellent toffs. If only we owned land oh, and had some money. land.
0: So, yeah. So anyway, so George's flies would call for multiple feathers from a swath of different birds, all of them beautiful and exotic, hard to get, really expensive. I have a question. Ask it.
1: Did this Doffy Lord Mortimer, what was his name? George Mortimer. Something Kelson. Whatever. Kelson. Yes. Excellent name. Um, did he ever consider breeding birds alive and having this constant source of feathers instead of... Engaging in the feather trade? No. Okay. <laughs> Short Understood. answer. Short answer. He was answer. a sportsman. He was a sportsman. He was also a, a cricket fanatic as well. I, I bet, bet he was, and I bet he never bowled. <laughs>
0: I think he was. He a would batsman. only
1: be the batter. I think that was the wasn't wasn't that the thing in in cricket? Oh my.
0: Anyway, so that was all going on in the Victorian era. But if you fast forward to today, the practice of salmon fly tying uh, has Become a little, a little different. As a sport, it still happens, but beyond that, there is now a subset within the community who tie these flies but have no intention of fishing.
1: <laughs> what? <laughs> what? Just to display?
0: Yeah, pretty much. They they do it as a hobby, and almost almost like an art form, I suppose you could say. L- let me let me uh, let me send you some some
1: fly ties. I'll send you. Yeah, sorry. I, I, I shouldn't laugh. I I didn't even really know what fly fishing was. Salmon fly ties. Oh my. So you can see they are they're objectively beautiful. They are. I, I think that's it's it's a, a tiny work of art with an incredibly sharp hook in it. But some of the, they're, they're amazing. Some of them look like uh, this. Looks like a a clownfish. This one just full on looks like a a, a quetzal. I can see why they needed. Or they wanted such bright coloured feathers on it. They look like little, little butterflies. Some of them.
0: Yeah, yeah, like a kind of like a half of a butterfly wing, almost. Mm. Some of them, aren't they? And you can see that there's. It's not just one or two feathers either. It's multiple feathers, and they're all intertwined in really intricate way. Like the the the, the skill to tie these flies is a thing onto itself. Mm. It's very difficult
1: to tie them well. Yeah, I would imagine they would snap, the, the quill would break quite easily, wouldn't
0: it? Yeah, yeah, it, it, I think it's quite easy, because you could see, I think, um, you have to, like, cut the feathers as well, and then inter-tie them into each other, basically, and then loop it all onto this hook. It is kind of an art form onto itself, so you can understand people will turn anything into a hobby and obsess over anything, um, you know? So... When those, so these ties that you're kind of seeing there, they were developed during the Victorian period, but now today they're just tied as a hobby, as something that's pretty to look at. You can kind of, you could see if you, you know put it in a nice timber frame, you'd put it in
1: your hunting lodge and you're like, yeah, look at that, that's great. Do they still use feathers from these rare and potentially endangered animals or do they colour very simple ones or plastic ones? Uh, so I guess we will come to that. The
0: okay. the the short answer is that nowadays people will just dye the feathers a particular color. Right. Yep. They'll use a common chicken feather or you know one of the
1: common and easy to get feather, and they'll just dye it the color they want it to be. Are you going to tell me? Are you going to tell me next that the um, to get that color of the dye you need to grind up like four or five different endangered birds <laughs> to get just the right color? Not quite. We've moved on. <laughs> not quite. Not quite. Um, but, I mean, you, you you
0: you have almost guessed exactly where we're going, though. Oh, really?
1: I did not expect that. Please.
0: Well, we're not grinding up the feathers, but anyway. So, they're still making these ties, but the problem is that now it's the 21st century. Time has moved on. Back in the Victorian days, the feathers that Kelson was calling for in his guides, you know, they may have been expensive, but if you had the money, you could just pop on down and buy them if you wanted them.
1: They go to the local feather market.
0: Yeah, pretty much. But today Yeah, but today a lot of those birds they're endangered, they're on protective species lists. It's literally illegal to sell or trade their skins except for under there are some very specific conditions where you can sell them legally. So Uh, If you wanted to sell feathers like that The only way you could do it today is if you could get your hands On historical feathers So say if you had an old Victorian hat That had the feathers incorporated into it You could sell that Mm. Or if there was a deceased estate that had a natural history collection that included preserved birds you could sell you could sell that oh i guess estates did used
1: to have those as well yeah
0: yeah or if you could convince an aviary or a zoo to give you the malted feathers of the birds that they had you could sell those <laughs> convince convince not, not pay <laughs> maybe they'd sell them to you for a couple of bucks i, I don't know but yeah. that's that's pretty much it those are okay. basically the only ways it's legally possible to to sell those to sell feathers like from those specific birds that we kind of met at the top of the episode good but within the community of fly ties there is now this romanticization around the traditions of the eight, or the 19th century and the with the people that first kind of came up with these lures that incorporated the feathers they're folk heroes and they're admired for the artistry they created. And there is such a strong desire within the community to tie these old traditional lures and that people are now willing to pay obscene sums of money to get their hands on these really rare feathers, just so they can like have a chance to tie the old famous lures using the original materials. Mm. And it's, they're driven to the point of obsession about trying to get these feathers. So now you can start to see what is the driving motivation for the heist, and that was where we're, we're about to get to. So, you have, you know, you've got this semi-obsessed niche community willing to pay top dollar to get their hands on, you know, almost impossible to get feathers, feathers that you can't find anywhere, except there are a few places where
1: they are there in abundance, and those are natural history museums. Yes, time for a museum heist. It sounds like the plot of some sort of. B-grade heist movie, doesn't it? They're, they're ransacking some deceased estate or some natural history museum.
0: Yes, it, well, exactly. And so I think now might be a good time to meet the hero of our story, or, or maybe the villain, Edwin Rist. He was an American. He was born in 1988, and he grew up in Hudson, uh, Hudson Valley, uh, which is a little north of New York City. Hold on, 1988? Yes. This is, this is a recent heist. This is a recent heist, David. Oh, please, go on. So, I, you know, I could suppose, I, I suppose you could say he had a slightly unusual upbringing. So his parents were freelance writers. They were Ivy League graduates. They were, you know, really intelligent, really, really well-read, and they made the decision that they were going to homeschool their children. So he had this really odd, intellectually stimulating childhood. And by all accounts, he was a really precocious kid, and you know, I mean that in... Positive sense of the word he was, he was very smart He had a range of hobbies and interests And in that he would become sort of semi-obsessed in uh, I think he maybe had a slight obsessive personality trait mm-hmm. He began playing the flute from a very young age And as we will see later He became a very talented musician At the age of 10 though He saw a mini documentary on TV about fly tying And he became enamoured by the beautiful objects And he wanted to learn how to tie them for himself so his parents, they, they looked around And they managed to find a local fly-tyer Who uh, gave him a crash course in the craft And they bought him the gear They drove him to you know, the, the fly-tying shows They're Very
1: supportive parents
0: They were very supportive parents And gradually Edwin kind of fell you know, deeper and deeper into the community And a couple more experienced fly-tyers They kind of, you know, because it, as you can imagine The fly-tying community is dominated by old retiree men I can't imagine that. Yes, it's kind of something that people sort of pick up as a hobby in their retirement. You know, well, relatively wealthy people as
1: well. I imagine it takes a vast amount of time to tie some of these, and you need to have it on your hands. Mm. So that, they, so that they had this thirteen-year-old kid was kind of like, whoa! It's like a, a chess grandmaster, at, at, you know, like a, a tiny child coming in beating these very old people. It's something that they spent their lifetime. Engaging with, I'm sure it's probably quite exciting for the existing fly fishing, fly tying community. To have this new interest.
0: Yeah, there were a few that kind of um, took him under their wing and they mentored him on the techniques. <laughs>
1: took took him under their wing. No pun intended.
0: Excellent. <laughs> and uh, he was gifted quite early on a little bag of feathers of from the of the, I think they were fruit crow and Contica feathers. Um, the ones we met early. Just just a handful that were I think they're estimated to have been worth about two hundred and fifty dollars worth of feathers. But you know we're talking about like ah uh, maybe a dozen um, feathers. That's quite a gift. It was quite a gift. There was probably I think there was enough for him to make two flies, and he was told you know that these these are the quality materials. You know this is what fly tying is is all about. And from there, his obsession, his own obsession, began to grow. And he would dedicate a lot of his free time to like mastering the craft of tying these intricate and delicate flies. And so he started to gain a bit of a reputation within the community. As you know, he basically became a master fly tie as a teenager, and people started asking him for advice on how to tie particular lures. And he became like a mini celebrity within the community. Oh, he was very good at it. Then that's great. Yeah, he was. And but at the same time, he was he was falling under the spell of these exotic, hard to get feathers. And the community had their way of sourcing them. So people would troll eBay, and they'd wait for someone to put like the feathers on the market. Or oh, there there are a few specialty online stores that would sell sell them as well, all claiming that they had been gotten through legal means. But I suppose we'll we'll we can come back to that later. Claiming 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 allegedly legal um, allegedly yes. Great. So there, there were ways to get them, but they were all very expensive. So Edwin, he, he you know, he took on odd jobs and he would do casual work, you know, trying to scrape together enough money to, to buy a couple of these feathers. And you know, he reached out and he spoke to the guy who ran one of the online stores to get tips about how to source feathers. You know, he went and he spoke to zoos. Um, you know, he'd ask them if they'd send him feathers. But so you know, he was he was trying to do it all the right way. And he was becoming increasingly frustrated because he was just a kid trying to bid on eBay feathers against retired men who just had money to burn. And so he rarely yeah. was able
1: to buy any of them. So, you know, you feel sorry for the guy. You do. I mean, look, he's a he's a kid on eBay and arguably shouldn't be able to purchase things on eBay without supervision. But let's not get into that. <laughs> yep. He was keeping an eye on them, doing odd jobs. Yep. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. So these were his formative years in the community, and you know he's constantly dealing with the frustration of feather scarcity. Anyway, so but at this point, this is this is just a hobby of his. You know, it's, a, it's a semi-obsessive hobby, but it, you know it's just a hobby. The best hobbies are. Oh, ab- you know, if you're not going to be semi-obsessed about your hobby, is it even a hobby? It's not worth it. It's not worth it, guys. Life's too short. Go go go, a hundred percent, or get out. Go go tie some flies. So anyway, so he's—he's. He's, th- this is all kind of happening, I suppose, in the background to his life because you know he's—he's he's going, he's finishing school, he's doing his music studies, and you know his great hope is that he wants to get into the Royal Academy of Music in London.
1: Oh, so he had multiple obsessive hobbies. Yes. Yeah. yeah like sounds he sounds almost he... like a calling though. This, this flautist role.
0: Yeah, you could say that, I suppose. You know, he, he certainly dreamed big. And I think, you know, for most normal people, you'd be like, okay, buddy, whatever. But he must have been
1: <laughs> really talented because he yeah. got into the Royal Academy of Music in London. Oh, great. That's, yeah. that, I don't know if that's a big achievement, but it sounds like it should be.
0: Uh, yeah, it's, it's it's a fairly big deal. And so this kind of brings us to 2007. And he's, he's 19 years old and he kind of packs up and he heads over to London to continue his music studies. And right before he leaves, a member of the fly-tying community, he tells him, he says, Hey, hey buddy, while you're in England, you should you should pop into the Tring Museum and take a look at the bird collection they have. It'll make your mouth water, sort of thing. <laughs> so anyway, so we've got our rising music star, we've got a fly-tying wunderkid, budding criminal-to-be. <laughs> what? <laughs> That's a little foreshadowing, but yeah So, Oh, sorry, was it not clear that he's the... The anti-hero of the, the story The anti-hero I had no idea But maybe we should pause for just another quick minute To visit the scene of the crime and explain what the Tring Museum was And I, I guess still is <laughs> Yes, tell me about the Tring Museum So the Tring Museum, to do that we have to talk about one of my favourite figures from history Lionel Walter Rothschild Is the
1: Rothschild name familiar to you, David? I believe so. Was he mentioned in a much earlier episode of the podcast? Yes. Was he a uh he was a taxidermist? Mm, or close. a collector of, of yeah. various animal bits and pieces?
0: Yes, he was indeed. So he's part of um he was part of the, the Rothschild family. He was born in eighteen sixty eight. And, you know, there's probably a whole podcast you could do on the history of the Rothschilds. Um, But the short story is they were an incredibly wealthy family that made their fortune through being bankers of the royalty. But by the time Walter kind of comes along, the family had already been elevated to the peerage and his father was a baron. And he would go on to become the second Baron Rothschild and a member of the UK Parliament. Um, But his real passion was biology. And the guy... Basically spent his whole life amassing what would become the single largest private collection of animal specimens
1: I've just googled Walter Rothschild and a picture has come up of him Of Walter Walter Rothschild and zebra-drawn carriage Yes Is him on a carriage Yes With four zebras hooked up
0: Yes Do you also see a picture of him riding a Galapagos tortoise?
1: I don't, but I'm looking for it enthusiastically (laughs) Rothschild on a tortoise, please. Chase <laughs> that that look. I've I've done that in video games. I would. I don't imagine that would be a great thing to do, <laughs> for a tortoise in real life. What's he got on the stick?
0: Uh, I think he. Uh, I think he's using a bit of the old carrot and stick. Um thing and i don't know i'm not looking at the photo but i think it's he's like, trying to like um encourage it to move by having a bit of food on the stick is my is what i think's going on
1: yeah lettuce yeah <laughs> something like stick.
0: that yeah yeah so he was a bit of a character as you can tell from the photos yeah. that you have found he was he was of poorly health but he paid people to basically scour the globe and they sent back Reptiles and insects and fish and birds and eggs, as well as living animals, and he had a whole menagerie of creatures from, you know, the Galapagos tortoise to the, the zebra pulled carriage. Um, you could say he was himself a bit obsessive. No, surely not. He was a he was a very balanced, <laughs> very balanced man. He seemed like a regular banker. I think um, he he um, he resorted to hiding all his spendings from his father because he was admonished by the obscene sums of money he was spending on just collecting dead <laughs> animals.
1: Look at me, Daddy. I'm riding a tortoise. Uh, Get back inside, Walter. Back to the bank, You're boy. On. To a disappointment. <laughs> but, Daddy, there's lettuce. <laughs> Quick, he'll move you if you keep watching. Daddy, no, don't close the door. <laughs> uh, so to be clear, the picture of him on the tortoise, he's like a 50-year-old man in a hat. <laughs> <laughs> Daddy. <laughs> so, Daddy, no, please, come watch me on the tortoise. Uh, but, yes, but, please, I, th- I, birds. I think he had a, a,
0: a, I think he always had like a, a childlike quality to him, as you'd have to do, act the way he did. Um, yes, well, I mean, if you've got that much money, why not? Well, in, indeed, don't we all wish we could? Anyway, so at its greatest extent, I think he had something like three hundred thousand birds, two hundred thousand birds' eggs, two million butterflies, thirty thousand beetles thousands of mammals and reptiles and fish like it was as vast a private collection as you can possibly imagine anyway so i guess you could say he was a bit of a well he fancied himself as a gentleman naturalist and he would he would pay top dollar for rare or unusual specimens in the hope that he might discover something new and i have as you said i have touched on him in episode 10 where there were there were two like incredibly rare, maybe species, maybe hybrid birds of paradise that still bear his name today because he was the first person that described them. So anyway, so we've got Walter Rothschild sitting there with this unfathomably huge collection of birds. And when he dies in 1937, he stipulates in his will that it be donated to the British Natural History Museum. And his home in Tring was transformed into the museum, which is still there today.
1: I think you mean on un- Fathomably.
0: What did I say? Oh, thanks, yeah. Welcome. Sorry. The Welcome. <laughs> the museum in the town of Tring was originally his home. And right. the thing that you kind of have to remember about these museums is that the specimens that they hold is all the specimens that we are ever going to have. Because science isn't done in the same way that it was done back then you don't kill and collect and stuff the birds and preserve them in a in a museum it's basically you know it's illegal you can't do it now and so the specimens that we the scientific specimens that we do have they have to take good care of them because you can't replace them they're irreplaceable now anyway but so that's that's the museum um it's got a lot of birds it's really important to natural history and science where is the museum where, where is it Hmm. It's just north of London. It's about, a, I think, it's about an hour's ride on the train north of London. That's that's a very specific direction of how to travel there. I like it. Great. This this is kind of the spot. This is kind of we've reached the halfway point. So we've set up all the pieces. We've touched on how we've seen the fashion trends. We've got the gentlemanly fly ties, exotic plumes, making lures. You know the old traditions. They're now romanticized by the current fly ties. They want the old feathers, they're super expensive, they're semi-illegal to obtain. We've got a promising young fly attire, only too aware of how much the feathers are worth. We've got a natural history museum, brimming with literally millions of dollars worth of rare
1: feathers. If only they could be liberated and sold (laughs) to the right buyer. Liberated by a young flautist.
0: (laughs) Indeed. If only. Indeed. The stage is set, but I'm conscious that we are starting to run long, so maybe next week you'll um you'll have to come back and find out how this heist went down and discover how Edwin was caught. David, would you like to come back next week? Definitely not going to just keep recording now.
1: Yes, let me just check my schedule. (laughs) Yes, I'm free. (laughs) Wunderbar. Okay. We'll see you all then. See ya.
0: So that was part one of our story. Join us again next week to catch part two. But in the meantime, I'm heading off now to record this week's Patreon-only episode on how the great tit got its name. It may sound like these birds are a sex joke on wings. What and why of how they ended up with their name is rather interesting, though. And for the low price of just $2 a month, you can find out all about it when you sign up on Patreon. That's www.patreon.com. Or one word come on you know you want to there's a link in the description just go and click it you'll love it and if you want more bird action in your inbox you can always sign on for our free weekly email service by dropping a line to weekly.bird at outlook.com to get added to the bird of the week mailing list because hey we could all use more birds in our inbox i hope you'll join me again next week when we'll be picking up our story on edward Rist and the natural museum history heist of the century until then, this has been Bird of the Week.
1: Look at me, Daddy. I'm riding a tortoise. <laughs> Get back inside, Walter. Back to the bank, boy. To your disappointment. <laughs> but, Daddy, there's lettuce. <laughs> Quick, he'll move if you keep watching. Daddy, no, don't close the door.